You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is made possible by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're encouraging you to always be in the front seat when it comes to your money. Discover how at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. Thanks so much for joining me today. So on today's show, we've got an entrepreneurial story that will not only help you if you are in the throes of trying to launch your own business, but may also help you with your own life. On the show before, we have talked about the trend of more couples than ever before cohabitating before marriage instead of marriage to save money. But we haven't talked about the fact that there are more Americans overall in non-romantic relationships choosing to room together for the very same reason. More Americans than ever are living in what's called doubled up Households, And that's a term that demographers use to describe homes that include additional adults, people other than the householder, other than the partner. And we are talking about people who live with roommates or with their parents. So according to the Census Bureau, a little bit of data for you. In 2015, about a quarter of Americans between the ages of 18 and 34 lived with roommates. And that's up 23% from the decade before. Even more, because you know I love the data, a Pew Research Center analysis found nearly 32%, so one-third of the overall American population lived in a shared household in 2017. And again, that is a big jump from a couple of decades ago. With Roommates on the Rise, we decided to bring in Elian Beck, and she is founder and CEO of RoomZoom. I love that name. I just like to say it, RoomZoom, a roommate matching web app, which is designed to take the stress, the financial risk, and the guesswork out of finding a roommate. And she's here with me in the studio today. Elian, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Jane. I have a hunch that RoomZoom was inspired by a personal experience, but I want to hear it from you. How did this app and business come to be? It was indeed. I am a problem solver by nature, and I was work. I was very happily working in a job in media, but I did live with three other roommates in a four-bedroom apartment in Brooklyn, and. I saw my friends, I was at the time in a relationship, but I saw my friends using these dating apps to, you know, find boyfriends and go on dates. And and it all seemed so easy. And compatibility was this thing that was sort of starting to foment on the internet. But uh, this problem of finding a roommate was really tough for every single person I knew. And if you talk to anybody in their 20s and in New York City in their 30s and sometimes 40s, they have experienced this problem if they have ever experienced a co-living situation, which the vast majority of us have. And not just New York City. My son is 24. He lives in Los Angeles. And he moved out there, had a week to find an apartment, find a roommate, and start his job, which he did manage to do. But it can be stressful. It's incredibly stressful. Finding a place to live um, 
in the studies is the second most stressful thing behind a romantic breakup. So this is high on people's stress level, and they are very, very, very motivated to fix the problem, though until now there really haven't been good tools. So I don't. what did your son use to, to find his apartment? Um, a camp friend. A camp basically. friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. A camp friend who knew a school friend who knew some kids from USC. Exactly. Lots of people who were looking for an apartment. So he got lucky because he he, he was networked and, and people end up using their personal networks. Sometimes they end up writing on their Facebook walls. Um, a lot of people turn to things like Craigslist, which are essentially a, a bulletin board that was built in 1996 that just happens to be on the internet. But they're not tools that are built to collect all the people that have this problem and put them in the same place. And then what RoomZoom does is we match people based on compatibility. So what happened to you that you were in this situation where you had an aha moment? So it was a four-bedroom apartment, and it's sort of this idyllic Brooklyn situation. There are four women, young women, professionals living in this apartment, buzzing about our New York City lives, and all ambitious and building our careers. But because it's a four-bedroom, there's a fairly high churn rate. You know, people are moving to new cities. Someone's breaking up with their boyfriend. Someone's moving in. So about every six or so months, we found ourselves in the position of needing a new roommate for one of those four bedrooms. So what we would do is we would post on Craigslist, which then invites a flood of hundreds of emails Mm -hmm. because the housing market in in these cities, Los Angeles included, almost every metropolitan city um, in the country, is huge and growing. So just the market dynamics made made it so that we got hundreds and hundreds of emails in our inboxes. So then what we would do, we would make a Google Doc asking questions of people. You know, what? where do you work? How old are you? What time of day do you shower? <laughs> where did you go to college? And from that Google Doc, we would vet people by hand. Then people would come in and we would essentially interview them in person. So as you can see, this process was awkward. Mm-hmm. It was cumbersome, time-consuming, and not terribly accurate either. Right. Very random. When I first moved to New York, I used the early form of Craigslist, the New York Times classifieds, to find a roommate. And I got lucky because I lived for a period in my life in Wisconsin. I found this um empty room in a wonderful two-bedroom apartment in Park Slope. And very, lucky. very, very, for $400 a month. I know wow. I should have bought real estate <laughs> at that point in time, but I was only making $11,000 a year. So buying real estate was out of the question. I couldn't even afford the $400. But I did, I was one of those people who went, there was a stream of people interviewing to become the next roommate in this apartment. I went in. I met with her. She was from Wisconsin. No way. Yeah. And I knew it. I knew the second I left, I was like, I got this. Because nobody else that day who showed up was going to be from the cheese state. It just—it was not going to happen. You got very lucky. I got very lucky. But it could have been a disaster. It could have been a disaster. And you— probably would actually believe the horror stories that come our way from our members because they've experienced, you know, your son got lucky and so did you. And for all the people that get lucky, so many more people end up in these terrible living situations, either just because of the incompatibility, they move in with their friend's cousin's friend and it doesn't work, or they move into these situations if they're new to a city that are, in some cases, not safe. So that was really, I knew that this whole universe 
of problems existed in housing for young professionals who were co-living because of this huge trend that we've identified. And I decided that we needed to do something about it. You built an app. Yes. RoomZoom is a web app. It's based on an algorithm that I wrote that takes all these factors, which I'm happy to go into, to really crunch the numbers on each person and then sorts every single person according to compatibility. So it's the eHarmony of roommate Precisely. And what factors have you found to be most important when predicting whether people are going to be happy or not? It's actually the logistic factors of, okay, are we, is our rent budget about the same? You know, there's the non-negotiables, the dating, the date, the rent, where you want to live. Those are the things that we solve for, the algorithm solves for first Mm -hmm. to decide, okay, who are we actually going to show? And then after that, cleanliness, and we take cleanliness and pull it out into a variety of questions in the algorithm because it's so important, ends up being the thing that people argue about the most and ends up being the thing that even if you don't see your roommate, if they are clean and you're clean, you appreciate them from afar, even if you're two ships passing the night because of your schedule. And as far as those questions about when do you shower, when do you wake up, do you smoke, all of those Mm -hmm. things, do they just play a less important role? Yes. So in the algorithm, we weight every single question according to its importance in living situations and how likely that question is to create conflict or create harmony among roommates. Do you, um, other than the housing budget itself, do you take finances into consideration when it comes to matching people up? And and how do you do that? Because I know when you're living with somebody and trying to maybe share a food bill or utilities bill, people's financial habits can get annoying. That is so insightful. And it's something that we would like to do in the future in terms of actually qualifying these young renters for landlords. So we've gotten a lot of interest from landlords because this population is attractive to them. Mm-hmm. Over 60% of our user base is looking for an apartment. The, the rest have an apartment, like my situation when I was, you know, building room Zoom. But because the majority of our population is looking to sign a lease, landlords are very interested in, in access to this population, whether it's through advertising or posting apartments on our site. And they're also very interested in pre-qualifying these people. Through credit scoring? Precisely. So that's some that's that's the next step in RoomZoom's evolution. I want to talk a little bit more about the starting your business side of everything. But for people who are out there looking for a roommate, how do they get the app and where does it work? Great question. On RoomZoom.com, you can make a profile. And we our team screens 100% of people, which I hope your listeners will be happy to hear because most places on the internet are just a free-for-all. And we make sure that people have their first and last names listed, they have a working social media account, and that they have a photo that actually shows their face. You would be so surprised as to what a huge difference that makes when people end up on RoomZoom with a group of several dozen matches, and every single one of them has a coherent profile with a clear photo and social media that works. People are just so happy to have a place where the quality has been a bit managed for them because this is such an important issue for people. And then how many of those people do you suggest the RoomZoomers meet? We suggest that once you've made an account on RoomZoom.com, you message all the people who to you look like they would be a fit. So the algorithm gets you 90% of the way there. We tell you 
all the people that are moving when you want to, who have the same budget, who also want to live in the neighborhoods that you've selected, or if you're you have an apartment, all the people that fit with the apartment that you already have and, and the living criteria that you've selected. So we get you almost all the way there. And then what we suggest is you just message everybody that appeals to you. And that's the human touch that I think technology can't replicate. And I don't think we'll ever try. Technology can do so much, but it, it sometimes you just need that, mm-hmm. that hand-holding. Just a little extra mile where you message who you like. All right. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of starting this business, let me just remind everybody that Her Money and interesting conversations like this one is brought to you by Fidelity Investments because together we want to inspire all women to be in the financial front seat. And that means knowing what you own, what you owe, how to reach your goals, and having a financial checkup at least once a year. From understanding the basics of market volatility to creating an investing plan, Fidelity can help. And you can learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. RoomZoom is free. Yes. So how are you making a living? That's a great question. Um, We did raise some seed financing from a group of intrepid investors who I am, you know, always inspired by. It's a group of people who have been independent thinkers their whole lives and built careers on that. And right now we're in the midst of raising a second round of financing. The names for these always change. You could call it a seed. You could call it a series A at this point. But we're in the middle of raising a second round of financing. What's it like being out in the market these days and looking for capital as a woman? I almost cannot describe to you how difficult it is. It's, I don't know. I honestly don't know if it's possible. I mean, it's it's one of the most difficult. It is absolutely the most difficult thing I've ever done. And let me clarify, I don't know if, I don't know if it's honestly something I would recommend, um, I would recommend starting a business. I would recommend um, building something that you're passionate about. What I would also recommend is figuring out if your business is the type of business that can get to profitability without raising financing. Not all can. And and RoomZoom is a, an example of a company that has such a huge market. And though we do have a great LTV for our members eventually, based on the, the money that we plan on bringing in from from all these landlords that want to pay for access and also a membership fee. Um, We're a company that it makes sense to raise venture capital financing for. Though, if somebody's starting a business, I would encourage them to take a very close look at their business and see if they need to. What is the profile of a company for which it makes sense to raise venture funding? Because I think a lot of people look at Many of the successful businesses that we featured on this show, they see the rent, the runways, and the mm-hmm. muses, and mm-hmm. the skims, and mm-hmm. they've, they've all raised money. Yeah. Many of them have had a tough time doing mm-hmm. it. I, uh, Catherine Minshew of The Muse told us that she pitched 148 times before mm-hmm. she got funding, mm-hmm. which she thinks is a record. But <laughs> She's astounding. Yeah. You no, know, it is. It's, it's incredibly difficult. So how do you know if that's you before you even think? Think about dipping your toe in the water. It's your business model. So if you look at your business model and you know that you have a delta between the cost that it takes to acquire a customer and the cost and what you're making off that customer. A delta? The difference between 
what you're paying to acquire them and what you make from them as as a member of your community in whatever way it may be, then it may make sense. Because if you can if you can make money by acquiring users, that's great. You're 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 on your way to having a model that may make sense for to raise venture funding for. Um, that being said, if you can attract customers, and I mean, of course, it depends on the business, but if you can attract customers in a way that doesn't require marketing, for example, which not all com- not all companies do, uh, it may not make sense. If you run a company that is, I don't know, a, a nonprofit, for example, or a company that um, is maybe like a B two B. SaaS company. It may make sense to hire some salespeople for sweat equity and get those first big B2B clients uh, and start running your company in the black before you before you look at raising venture funding. And if you're running your company in the black, you'll also have a lot more leverage before you raise funding. Though I'm happy to get into the game of, of the, the venture financing world. Um, but I, and I don't want to be discouraging, but it's worth it's worth looking at very, very carefully, I would say. You sound like since you left your media job, you've gotten a pretty complete education. How have you learned all of this? Blood, sweat, some tears, a lot of late nights. Um, I've also learned that there's really no substitute for doing something yourself. I'm sure you've learned this in your career, too. (laughs) Really just doing it. (laughs) How do you personally manage the risk that comes with starting your own thing? I mean, even the money that you... Um, mm-hmm. raise in a seed round is not enough to pay yourself an mm-hmm. awful lot um, and keep the business growing. That's true. Um, I have certainly gone down that cliched route of spending my savings on supporting myself and in some cases supporting the business. And personally managing the risk, I think that the only reason why it feels worth it at this point is because it's something that really has originated in my gut and that every single day I see the benefit of from our members. Every single day we get thank you notes from people who have vastly changed their lives because of something that we are providing in the marketplace. And the managing of the personal risk actually just comes from a faith that we're building something of value that is going to make a lot of money. Well, I think it's a fascinating journey. I hope that you'll keep us posted because I think often we talk to founders when they're a little bit further down the road than Mm -hmm. you are. I like knowing what stage you're in right now and would love to be able to keep tabs on your process as you pair roommates together throughout the country. Thank you for giving us the airtime. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. We will be right back with Kelly and your mailbag. Ellian, thanks so much. Thank you, Jean. Kelly Haltgren has joined me in the studio. You know, I think a lot of your experiences living with roommates, Mm -hmm. because it's been a long time for me, um, really piqued our interest in this subject. Oh, absolutely. And you and I were chatting before the show. I think it's so interesting how Venmo has helped and maybe hurt some roommate situations. I'm not sure of everyone else's experience. Maybe you guys can relate to this. But in my living situation, we split everything, Mm -hmm. which is great. Because I feel like it just keeps things fair, keeps them equitable. But sometimes it feels like we're exchanging the same ten to fifty dollars on Venmo, like back and forth. So I'm interested in hearing if you, if anyone listening, 
has created a system for monthly expenses with their roommates so that it doesn't feel so much like it's not nickel and diming, but it's just it is really silly. Like I'll Venmo her seven dollars for toilet paper and then the next day she'll request seven dollars for laundry detergent. So I'm wondering, like, what could we do differently? Well, I wonder if you can. And and by the way, it's not just roommates. I Venmo money back and forth (laughs) to my husband. Oh, you do? We do. Oh, we do. For what? (laughs) You know, sometimes we'll take a trip. I mean, we we've yeah. We, we haven't merged our money. Right, right. Right? So we have merged some of it. We've got a household account, and we both put money into that that we use to pay for things mm-hmm. for the house. But sometimes we'll take a trip, and he'll buy the tickets, or I'll buy the tickets, and then we'll settle, settle up. up. Or sure. what did I just pay for? I just paid for – he. oh, he laid out some money – for an expense at our our finances are a little wacky. Um, he laid out some money for an expense at home for like a a re- home repair. Okay, but that one was on me because it's our primary house, not our house at the beach. We sometimes sure. we sometimes sort of separated by it house by house yeah. because it has gotten a little bit easier that mm-hmm. way. I wonder if the old fashioned solution might make you and your roommate feel a little bit better, mm-hmm. where you just keep a running tally on a piece of paper on the fridge, mm. and then at the end of the week or at the end of the month, you just Venmo and do it once. It's so simple, and I have not thought of that. Because it's so 1982. It's so—well, maybe, <laughs> but that's that's right, because we're so—we live in this age of immediacy. So right away, like, as soon as I buy something, I can quickly send it off, and then it's out of sight, out of mind. I don't have to remember to do that. Maybe that's better. Maybe. Maybe that's better. I mean, the the unfortunate thing about the fridge system is that sometimes the months get a little out of whack, and then you get to the end of the month, and you owe your roommate $100, and you really were not counting on that. Mm, you know, you, right. you it, yeah, the fact right. that it goes back and forth makes budgeting a lot easier because you keep track of your finances in real time. Right. And it also safeguards you from making sure you're paying for things that you agreed to pay for. Right. I think it's fascinating. Yeah. I do. I think I think the fact that we all um, can Venmo even for a check in a restaurant, yes. you know, enables people to split it more equitably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Which, which may have. or may not be the right you know, comfortable across the board. But I always think if it's working for you, then it's working. And it's working. I just flash back to Hayden, who many of you know from Hayden Helps segments. And she thinks the act of requesting money from someone on Venmo is aggressive. Hayden's really? also the nicest person ever. Yes, she So is. she'd rather you tell her how much that she owes you and then her to send it to you without her or like just she doesn't want the act of requesting like she would rather just pay you and she'll do the same or she expects the same so if how are you supposed to tell her what you know rather than or how are you supposed to ask for the money if you're not asking for the money i think a text rather than a venmo yeah isn't that interesting it is (laughs) it is but but it shows that it doesn't work for everyone. Yeah. We could talk about this clearly all day, all but day. let's do some questions. <laughs> yeah, I just thought of my friend Brandon, too, with his Venmo habits. Okay, questions. We'll do one from Anna. 
She writes, I'm a 37-year-old public school teacher. My school district provides $10 per pay period, 240 total each year toward retirement. I'm putting 250 per pay period twice a month into my 403B. Should I be putting some of this in a Roth IRA since my employer's matching dollars are so little? No, not necessarily. I, it, the thing that makes the 403B like the 401k attractive besides the matching dollars is the automation. The fact that the money comes right out of your paycheck and you don't have to think about it. As long as you like the options for investing the money within that 403B, I think you're fine. Mm-hmm. The other thing to keep in mind here, you're a public school teacher. You've got a pension as well. So I know there are people out there thinking $10, $240 a year. I forgot about cheap, the pension. Cheap, cheap. Yeah. You got a pension. Mm-hmm. And so they are contributing in other ways as well. Yeah, that was going to be my question. question. How, how could they contribute just $240 a year? Yeah. Public just... school teachers have often really generous, nice pensions, which is terrific. That's great, as they should. As they should. Mm -hmm. We'll do another retirement-related question from Whitney. I am 41 years old and earn about $200,000 annually. I came to my career late, so only have about $100,000 saved for retirement. I would like to put $40,000 annually toward retirement so I can retire by 65. I'm not sure how to do this with federal limits on retirement account contributions, though. I currently have an active 403B and an old Roth IRA that I have not contributed to since my earnings increased. What would you recommend? Absolutely fund the 403B as much as you possibly can. If you can't put money into a Roth IRA, and you probably can't in the same year because of the amount of money that you're earning, you can put money into a traditional IRA and just do it without taking the tax deduction, but then those funds will still be allowed to grow tax-deferred, and there's an advantage in that. And then you just save more in a discretionary account where you pay taxes and you are what you're trying to do is something that people who are members of the fire movement and and fire we're going to bring you an entire show maybe more on the fire movement because I am a little obsessed with this at this point fire stands for financial independence retire early and people who are involved in the fire movement save sometimes as much as 70% of the money that they're earning every year. And the way they do it often is voluntary simplification, early downsizing, paying very close attention to how much they're earning and not spending on anything that is outside of the parameters of things that they truly need. It is a movement that I think all of us, even those of us who don't have goals of of getting to financial independence, early retirement in our 30s or 40s, as many of these fire people do, but all of us can learn something from the fact that they are able to save so much money. And so we will bring you one of these shows within the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I'm really excited to see what we can pull from those extreme savings habits so that we can apply them for ourselves or personalize them. Because I'm interested. I'm not interested in doing FIRE, but I'm interested in seeing if I can modify or personalize something that they do for me in order to increase my savings rate. Yeah, supercharger savings. Yeah. Right? So we will—more to come on that. More to come. And we will do one more from Estella. 
I hope you can give us advice on this matter. We want to pay our house off. We owe about $80,000. We wanted to withdraw from our 401k so that we can take that expense away. My husband is 53 years old, and we're thinking about changing careers, knowing that he might have to take a cut in pay. I'm 60 years old, and I work, but not as much as I used to. So it sounds like she's wondering whether or not pulling from the 401k is the right move to make for paying off the house. Generally, I would say no. Um, I do like the idea of paying off the mortgage before you retire. We've talked about that before. I think especially if you're moving into a career where you know that you'll be earning a little bit less or you're downshifting your income, getting rid of a big fat expense that is obviously stressing you out is not a bad idea. What I don't like about the pulling money out of the 401k is that even if you can do it without penalty and at age 60 – she has the ability to pull out of a 401k without penalty, although he does not. So Mm. it depends on whose 401k funds it is. You still have to pay income taxes on that money. I I would rather see you soft pedal contributions into the 401k, back off on the contributions to give yourself a little bit of extra money to put against the mortgage. The other thing, though, that you do need to keep in mind is that, especially if this is a mortgage that you either took out or refinanced in the last few years, the money's cheap. The money is probably, after the tax deduction, only costing you about 3% a year, which means you only have to earn more than that to make investing the money for your future the more profitable transaction. So I'd be careful. I I think that you are, I, I read between the lines, Estella, that you are coming at this question from an emotional perspective more than a numbers perspective, let's take a look at the numbers and and see how much less your husband really is going to earn before you decide to make what seems to me to be a very costly move. Great. Thank you, everyone, for writing in and asking your questions. And Jean, thank you for answering them. Absolutely. And before we go to our weekly Thrive segment, I just want to do a little shout out about the fact that we are going great guns with our weekly newsletters. I don't know how many of you who are listening are subscribed to our weekly newsletters. We now have two of them coming out twice a week. Lots of important information about what goes on every single week in the world of money, interest rate changes, things in the tax laws, interesting studies that we have found, as well as stories that we're publishing on hermoney.com that are just really valuable for anybody who likes listening to this show. And so to make it easy for you, if you want to get on our newsletter list, all you have to do is text her money, one word, her money, to 888111. I will say that again, and we'll also put it in the liner notes of the show. Just text the word her money to 888111. And I've also put together a list of my favorite top 10 money rules that you will get for free. So there you go. It's a it's a little holiday bonus gift from, from those of us at Her Money. And as we head into the holidays, on today's Thrive segment, we're talking about healthcare, um, which was not only one of the dominant issues in the election, but also something that we all have to think about this time of year as open enrollment starts to draw to the close. What we know is that millennials have been 
putting the kibosh on a lot of red, white, and blue things lately, like vacations, they're not taking them, like American cheese, they don't like it. And now the primary care doctor. A recent survey by the Kaiser Family Foundation said 45% of 18 to 29-year-olds do not have a primary care doc. Now, what is up with that, Kelly? Kelly, who does not have a primary care doctor, I keep encouraging her to see mine. One explanation is that millennials are all about the convenience factor. They'd rather see a random doctor immediately than wait for an appointment to open up with their go-to doc. Sounds a little like the Venmo conversation Mm -hmm. we were having, doesn't it? And... While we're on the topic of doctors, one thing that might make all of this easier is that now many employers are choosing workplace health benefits that offer you the option to visit your doctor virtually, virtually, like through video chat. There are a couple of explanations for this. One of them is convenience. It's easier for workers, for people like all of us, to seek help for non-life-threatening health issues without having to trek outside to the doctor's office. But another biggie is cost. And although all of us are seeing our health care bills rise, employers are also getting hit with this. And they may start to see a break on their bills if virtual visits gain steam. So should we all try it? I think it's useful. And I think it may be a smart move for routine issues like allergies and skin problems, prescription refills. My doctor actually made me go to the office a couple of weeks ago just for a prescription Uh, refill. And I had gotten my physical. I was not Mm -hmm. happy. And she is my friend, but I was Uh. not happy. Um, Even for things like therapy or the occasional cold. But if you've got anything severe or where you're not exactly sure what's going on, then take it from Dr. Mom and go see the doctor (laughs) in person. Um, By the way, the fees or co-payments charged for all of those above things will depend on your insurance. And P.S., it is time to get a flu shot. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Ellie and Beck for a terrific and really, really interesting conversation. Check out her app, Room Zoom. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week when we'll be back with Erica Keswin, who is leading the movement to bring your human to work. We'll talk soon.